And we are in 1 Peter chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 5, verses 10 and 11. Next week we will wrap up 1 Peter and say goodbye to an old long-lost friend of ours. And uh, the beginning of March, Lord willing, we'll be in the book of Genesis. And so, uh, something to look forward to. For those of you who are uh, call us home, that would mean that March 5th is Bowtie Sunday when we finally switch a book and go to the next one. So, for all of you bowtie wearers. We can celebrate the ending of 1 Peter and the beginning of Genesis on that day. Let's pray, and uh, we'll get into our text. Dear Holy Father, thank you again that it's by your grace that we are saved. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Help us today to live humbly dependent upon you and you alone. There is none before you, there is none above you, there is none but you and you alone that are worthy to be praised. So help us, we desperately need it. Guide us, may your truth, as we look into it, may it open our eyes to see who you are, see who we are, and how we are to live obediently. In your Son's name we pray, amen. When we think about the brevity of life, we think about that word brevity, and most of us probably don't use that word very often, but when we think about the brevity of life and how short our life really is, uh, I've found this to be the case. The older I get, the more I realize how short life really is. Uh, You look back and you go, I can remember as if it was yesterday when I was in high school and all those things going on. Some of you who may think that you're 40, that was yesterday, but uh, for those of you who may have a couple more years ahead of me, The brevity of life is not something that you usually have to teach people, all right? They know it. And as I was coming to today's passage, thinking about this phrase that we're going to look at in a second here, about the brevity of life, I do what I normally like to do. I love to see what popular culture has to say about the brevity of life. And one of the ways I do that is I just Google search and see, I Googled what are the top 10 songs about the brevity of life. And so it was very interesting what came up according to Google. We had that the Beatles were longing for yesterday. Remember how they're living, always thinking about yesterday. They even have a song about yesterday, longing to get back to yesterday, because the now is not that exciting, because the now reminds them that life is so short, so we just long for that yesterday. Pink Floyd has a song, and it says, And you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking. Racing around to come up behind you again, the sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. What inspiring words there. Luke Bryan, in one of his songs, says, 60 seconds now feels more like 30. Tick-tock won't stop. Around it goes. Sand through the hourglass falls in a hurry. And you all keep trying to do is slow it down, soak it in, keep trying to make the good times last as long as you can, but you can't, man, it just goes too fast. Again, you look at these and go, you know, those are, again, those are, I'm sure these are your life songs that you go, this is what I live for to remember. But it's just interesting how the world wrestles with these things. You can feel the hopelessness as I was quoting their lyrics even in these songs. 
Because when you live through the worldview that these songs are being written for, that all that happens right now is all that there ever is and all that there ever will be, there is no eternal, there is no anything beyond what we see here, you're forever chasing yesterday. You do that through your looks, you do that through your actions, you do that through whatever. You're always chasing youth that you will find out that every single day you get further and further from it. But we buy that lie that yesterday was, was all that matters. I mean, you see this, let's be honest, it plays out every Christmas, right? Because what are we trying to remember? Some Christmas back then that, let's be honest, well, did you ever have that Norman Rockwell nostalgic Christmas? No, but what are we always trying to do? Get back to that. As if that's fun, instead of living in the moment of going like, you understand we're here now, we don't need to relive that all, right? But yet we struggle with that. But for when we follow and understand the worldview that says only what happens now is all that there is, then here's the number one thing that we need to address. When you live with an unbiblical worldview, you live with right now matters, and right now is when you're supposed to have all of the fun. There's phrases about you only live once, right? And all of these other things that are going on, that are happening in this culture. So the number one thing that's going to ruin our fun, the number one thing that's going to get, basically, you want to call it wreck the ship, is suffering. So what our world does is when they see suffering, we try to get rid of it as quickly as we can. We try to remove it because suffering for, a, for someone who does not have a biblical worldview that is absolutely pointless there is no need for it, and let's try everything we can do to minimize suffering because suffering is the stopping of my pursuit of the momentary joy because this is all we have. And so, we will stop it at all cost. But, this is not how a Christian is to see the world. Let's look at our passage in 1 Peter 5 here, verses 10 through 11. Here Peter again it says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now remember, these are the last thoughts that Peter is going to be penning to a group of people that are about ready to get the Roman Empire leashed upon them with all of its power, all of its destructive nature. You're going to have emperor after emperor come in and literally start to attack the, the Christian church in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire. And as he's writing these last thoughts, he's going to be giving some of these because Peter knows that persecution is on the horizon. We've been walking through this. He sees it's coming. And as he's penning these last words, here's what he says, which we just read. So the title is A Little Suffering and Eternal Glory. I want to look at that phrase here in verse 10. It says, after you have suffered a little while. Uh, it's interesting, in my life, multiple people have said this is going to happen shortly, and your definition of shortly can be completely different than one thing to another. If you've been a little kid driving with your parents in the car, and you go, how long is it until we get there? Usually your parents go, it'll only be a little bit longer. Well, your definition of a little bit may be a little different than my definition of a little bit. And so we have to ask ourselves, when Peter says, in a little while, you're going to suffer for a little while, how is he determining a little while? Well, let's look at 1 Peter 1, 6 through seven to get an idea of what he means by this. Because we'll see the same phrase. First Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result 
result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What we see here is this phrase, a little while, being used in both places. But I would argue from the text that how long is a little while, Peter's going to basically say it's your life here on earth. And when you start thinking about what a little while is, and your life here on earth, when we start thinking of eternity, we start to realize my life here on earth is, can be described as a little while. James, in his book, wrote about our life being a vapor. It's here for a moment and gone. And the suffering that is going to happen is going to be for a little while. And we know that this is the case as well, because remember in verse 9 when we were looking at it, it said, knowing that the same time of suffering that your experience has been experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That suffering is part of the Christian walk. And all the suffering will come to an end when God comes back. Because notice what he says. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will restore. But before we go any further, though, we need to take a moment and look at the brevity of life. When we think about the brevity of life, again, let's just go back to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. 24 and 25, he reminds us that all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What Peter is doing there is showing us the the great contrast between life and God's word. Spurgeon has a phenomenal quote where he tells us the history of grass. It's sown, grown, blown, mown, and gone. The history of man is not much more. Here for a moment and gone. I don't want to um, have you leave with a complex, but let's be honest, most of us will be quickly forgotten. All right. And uh, to show you this, the, that, not only you'll be quickly forgotten, if I were to ask you the name of your great-great-grandparent, most of you have no idea who they are, and you'd have to look it up, and you're the one who should care the most and you don't even remember them. All right, the only reason I remember mine is because I'm named after him, but I have no idea who my great-great-grandmother was. And so we look at these things here, and when we see the brevity of life, it should cause us to remember some things. Here's what should call us to remember, and this is what Peter's trying to remind them about. There is a coming glory. There is a coming promise that will make all the suffering of this world seem like a moment. That the things you are going through right now for the cause of Christ, and I could even say the same principle applies to any other suffering of just living in a sinful world, are momentary. Now, I was at a men's conference one time, and at this men's conference they had a phenomenal illustration, but um, I'm not really big into dragging all the illustration that this had with me, but what the guy had was an incredibly long white rope. All right, this just rope was as long as could be. It was just, I mean, it was yard after yard of it. And at the end, he had a little tiny piece of red tape on it. And so they gave us, when we left, these little things that I stuck in my car to remind myself of it. This is the example of it. Obviously, this rope is not very long. But you see the little red thing at the end. And he said, for I want you guys to remember that this is your life here on earth, and here's eternity. And he said, it fails because, you know, there's an end to eternity. But he goes, but for you to remember this, the brevity of life. And he said, and so I stuck it in my truck to help me remember when, let's say there's times where things are not, like I'm angry and frustrated about stuff or someone cuts me off or something else like that's going on of going like, 
for a moment. These are momentary things. But when you look at the weight of eternity, you can see it's hanging on my rearview mirror. But for that, the brevity of life. Because when I remember the brevity of life, it's where the Lord of the Spirit says, listen, these are just but momentary afflictions for what is yet to come. And it helps you start to see the world the way God sees it. Because notice where this, about this eternal glory. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Let's not forget that word, in Christ. The reason why that glory will not fade, the reason why that glory is promised that it will come after the suffering comes, will come the glory, is because it is in Christ and Christ alone. He is the one that is holding it. It is not in your own strength in any way, shape, or form. And then he says here, the God of all grace. And this is where we want to pause for a while here. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace. You would say, how is suffering and grace? What does that have to do with anything? Because if God was so gracious, would he not stop us from suffering? But what we find is suffering shows us how much we need him and shows us how much we need his grace daily. A believer must grapple with the great grace of God. So let's take a journey here when we think of the God of all grace. We need to many times, what happens is, for those of us who have been saved, many, maybe if you want to call it for many years, and before you know it, we start to just forget the great depth of our salvation, how wretched we were standing before a holy God, and that the call of salvation came, not just through the power of the gospel that opened your blind eyes to see, but also caused you to go from spiritual death to life. And that this grace that God has poured out in your life was not because you somehow cleaned yourself up, you somehow earned it by doing extra good things or anything else, is by God's grace and His grace alone that you were saved. That is why grace, as even the song we started off with is called Amazing Grace. Alistair Begg, in one of his sermons, reminded us that until we discover that God is the God of all grace, we can never discover God. Until we understand the great need of grace in our lives, we will never understand humility. Because remember, we've defined humility as we walk through it. Humility is living a life that is utterly dependent upon the grace of God. Only when we dwell and understand who God is, we understand how gracious He is, and we understand how vile of a sinner we are, do we then have a proper understanding of who is God. Uh, one of the uh, great stories of this amazing grace was a slave trader, John Newton. And John Newton was known across the English world at that time when he was a slave trader as one of the most vile men. They literally have said, he wrote about himself saying, if you wanted to learn a new swear word, you'd go talk to John Newton, and he would tell you words that you never even knew existed that you could use as profanity. John Newton, in one of his own memoirs, said, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor, as far as I can remember, even the least sensibility of a conscience. John Newton, he would say, he was, if you want to call it, if Paul was the chief of sinners, he was the assistant chief down below underneath Paul. Because John Newton would say how much of a vile man he truly was until the saving grace of God broke through, opened his blind eyes, and so he then pens the words... In this famous song that he wrote, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved, and he didn't say an average guy like me. What did he say? A wretch. Until we understand our wretchedness, we will never understand that amazing saving grace. But what happens is all of us think, me included, we all think we're pretty special. 
We all think at the end of the day, almost as if I did God a favor because how wonderful I am. And then before you know it, we have nullified grace because grace by its very definition is unmerited favor. If you somehow can earn God's grace in your life by doing certain things, you are no longer living by grace. You are living by your own good works. And then you pat yourself on the back and say, what, good, what a good boy am I, not what a great Savior is he. And Peter is saying, remember the grace of God. This grace of God is going to hold you through these little moments of suffering. And here's the reason why that the grace of God holds us through little moments of suffering, even though you may say little moments of suffering seem like a long time because it's been my whole life of suffering. The reason why the grace of God holds us is because Christ will make all things new. Point number two, Christ will make all things new. Now, I want to make sure we're clear on this. This book is written to a group of people, and we've already studied this, how they are already being mocked. They're being maligned by the world around them. The world around them is looking down the proverbial nose at them and saying, oh, you're one of those people. You used to hang out with us. You used to do all these other things, but now you don't. Remember, you, you used to go to all these parties with us. Now you don't. They're going to malign you. They're going to mock you. They're going to ridicule you. And right on the heels of that mocking, ridiculing alienation is going to be people are going to start to lose their lives. He is writing this to a group of people who will soon be beaten, imprisoned, torn apart, and killed by the Roman emperor and the Roman Empire. And just to help you out, to give you a little historical understanding, if a nation that had been taken over by the Romans ever tried to rebel against Rome, Rome was really good at letting people know, we're going to set you as an example. There were cities that would try to rebel against Rome. They would set up a little revolt. Rome would come in. They would not only destroy the city, they would literally take everything they could and grind it into the ground so there was no more. They would bring in salt, put it all around the area so no one could even grow anything anymore, so no one would remember this nation anymore. And they would basically say, this is what Rome does to those who goes against Rome. This is Rome at that time. If you did anything that Rome did not like, you were dead, and they would make sure that you were dead type of deal. And they would squelch any rebellion that they would see in their world. So what Rome would try to do with this, this what we would call an upstart religion of Christianity, they would call it, they would try to destroy it, they would try to separate it, they're going to try to shake it, they're going to try to weaken it, and they're going to try to eliminate it with everything they have. And if you're a follower of that, we're not only going to kill you, we're going to make a sport out of how we kill you. And he's writing this letter to a group of people. Remember, when Rome comes in, they're smart. They're not dumb people. You take out the leaders. You knock out the leaders, the flock is going to scatter. And so people are going to be picking up this parchment of paper that Peter is writing this to. And as they're reading this, they're going to be reading it going, our leaders are gone. Who's left? We're literally going and hanging out where dead bodies are buried in the catacombs to meet in this, if you were to call it a shaky footing at best, and here's what Peter reminds them. This little suffering, Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This idea of restoring, I think the immediate context could be clear that you're looking at a group of people that are meeting that maybe literally had heard about their loved one get torn apart by the lions in the Colosseum. And they hear that God will restore them. That word restore means to make perfect or to mend. Those words carry when you go, will I see my loved one again? 
when half of them is over here and half of them is over here, who's going to restore them? God himself. It seems as if our Christian world is falling apart around us as they sit in the catacombs and, they, and Peter says to them, Christ will confirm, to make stable, to bring a firm foundation. We're weak. They've taken our leaders. They've taken the strong ones, the ones who are strong in the faith, because well, the only reason we're here is maybe because we have not been as faithful as we could be. We've, you know, not really stood for the truth. And what is he going to say? He will strengthen, make strong that which is weak. And he will establish secure in the ground not to be shaken. In 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43, Paul is reminding that because of the resurrection, things that were sown in the perishable will be imperishable. Things that were sown in dishonor will be honorable. Because of the resurrection, the promise that there is of the resurrection, that Christ will restore, confirm, establish, and strengthen. Peter is writing this to a group of people that are really going to ask, do we really believe, do we really trust the promises of God? Because what we're, they're about ready to see is that everything, earthly speaking, is going to tell them they're on the losing end of everything. All of this is being torn apart. All of this is being ripped away from us. Everything that we once held dear is now being destroyed, even our very lives. And what will get them ready to stand firm during this time, remembering that this suffering is going to be a little while. But God's grace, because it is anchored in Him and Him alone, He Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And you can see, you're going, well, how is this going to happen? Look at Rome. All right? Because here's the hard part. Many times we, we forget the historical context of it. Remember how huge it is when Rome fell. And I mean, you may not remember that. You probably don't at all. But if you put yourself historically speaking, when Rome fell, that was huge. Because if Rome can fall, what does that mean about anything else? Everything else can fall. I mean, it was when you read at the time when Rome actually fell, how earth-shattering it was to everyone who lived that Rome fell. All right, this was beyond, beyond even possibility that Rome would ever fall. But it's very interesting, the thing that it was trying to destroy... Christianity is still alive and functioning today because of what we just read. All flesh is like glass, grass, but the word of the Lord never fails. So how do we know this is the case? How are all these things possible? Verse 11 is such a phenomenal verse, but sadly many times because it, is, it carries with it like the doxology that we just rattle off, we don't ever pause and think through this. Point number three is Christ has eternal dominion. This word dominion in the Greek is kratos, which means power or might. And so I want to take a moment here and look at this and say, so it literally in the Greek it means power or might. So it should be translated, which, which I'm going to argue why it's translated properly, but if you're just translating it literally, it would say, to him belong the power forever and ever. So why we have to ask ourselves, why do the translators take a word that means power and say dominion? All right, well, there's a reason for it, that the context of it is saying it's more than just power. It's all power. It's sovereign power over all things is the context of the passage. 
It is not just talking power as in strength. There's even a greater, deeper meaning as the context of the passage. To him be the dominion forever and ever. This word dominion, why they chose that? Because in the English, it helps you get what the Greek is trying to communicate here of an all-powerful, all-sovereign control. That yes, Rome may think that it is all power and sovereign control over everything, but what do we know? No. God is the one, to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You have, for these people that were, this book was written to, the power of Rome versus the power of God. To Him belong the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we sit there and we say, oh, isn't that so wonderful when it comes to persecution, when we look at the sovereign hand of God? But I'd like to take a moment here and to understand that we are people of time. So I want to walk us back to the age of the Enlightenment. And during the age of the Enlightenment, there was a group of French guys that were trying their hardest because during the age of Enlightenment, remember the Enlightenment time was we are really, really, really smart. We are now enlightened. And we are so smart, we don't need any of these things like the Bible because we have literally give man long enough, man can do it all. We don't need this archaic book. The Bible doesn't matter. The Bible's not important. And here's how we're going to get rid of it all. We're going to come up with an argument. And the argument that the Enlightenment was, because remember, they had started worshiping man and his own mind and his own ability. And so this is where the beginning of humanism is coming in to our world. And before you know it, this was the argument that came out of the Enlightenment. That man is all-powerful and all-knowing. Man is brilliant. Just give him enough time, he'll figure it out. So, we have now a sovereign creator. But now the Enlightenment's going to tell us that what is more sovereign than the sovereign creator is man. Man's will is better than, and greater than God. So here's how they argued. If God is sovereign... Man cannot have a will that is free. So, if man has a free will, we cannot have a sovereign God. And so they went to the altar of man's free will. And that teaching of that, that was incredibly secular, has so seeped into the church that the moment that we even hear about the sovereignty of God, we all like to say, but what about man's free will? That even question in and of itself should cause you to pause for a second. Because what Scripture clearly teaches is that God is sovereign over all because God is the one who created all. Like, I'll give you an example. We're working on Genesis. In the beginning, man, right? No. In the beginning, God. So God now is the one who created. He has a sovereign right over everything. Now, I know we can debate this until the cows come home. You're following that, but I want to set us on the right course as we enter into the debate. All right? This is a wrestle we wrestle with all the time. But here's what Spurgeon, I love this quote on him. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop, fashioning the world and making stars. They will allow him to be in his omnery, dispensing alms and bestowing his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth, bear up his pillars, therefore, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves in an ever-moving sea. But when God ascends to his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. 
And so before we even get into the argument of free will and all the other things that are there, we have to understand our own sin nature. What's our sin nature? Man in his own sin nature is going to hate that God is in control of all things. Because what do we want to be? What is our pride? That we want to be control of all things. Isn't that what the garden temptation was? No, 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 Eve. You, you need to, in order to be this, you need to know it all. And Eve says, I want to be the one in control. I want to be the master of my own ship. You know that wonderful, horrible poem that everybody quotes at every graduation. I am the captain of my own soul. And you would go, good luck with that. All right. And we all love to say how powerful we are. But until we realize how silly that truly is, when we look at a, a sovereign God over the universe, we love it that he is in charge of all these things, but not my own life. And just for those of you who can remember when the towers fell at 9-11, it was amazing how many God bless America, God help us get out of this. And as soon as we were out of this, oh, oh that we, we can put you by the side now. Like, we just want you over here when we need to fix everything, but let's not, let's not talk about God anymore because when we start getting too far into it, now he starts having say over my own life, and I love my own autonomy more than I love anything else. And I would argue that crazy enlightenment era has gotten to, we got to the point where we now will look at someone and say, that is your truth, you do your truth, I'll do my truth, and before we know it, we go, no, there is God who is sovereign over all the world that has given us his truth, and you are continually held accountable to the obedience to the truth that he has proclaimed from the beginning. So how are we to look at the sovereignty of God? So if I could bring us back from our, all of your minds right now going, well, how do we handle the free will of God and God's sovereignty or whatever? Let's, let's just talk about how the Bible uses the sovereignty of God. It's used as a comfort. Because here's how it's used as a comfort. Your loved one has just been killed for the cause of Christ, and you have been promised that all things will be made new, and all you see around you is suffering and death. What does Peter say? The all-sovereign God of the universe will do what he said he will do, and he has the power to do what he says he will do. So Peter's answer to when everything seems like it's falling apart, is God is in sovereign control of all things, past, present, and future, and has all power. That's why he ends it. To him be the all-sovereign power forever and ever. Amen. Rome does not have the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Only God does. This is a rest that the believer has. Let's turn in your Bibles real quick to Matthew 10 and talk about how Jesus understood this to be, that God is sovereign over all things. Matthew 10. Twenty-nine through thirty-one. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Meaning, it's when the sparrow's time to die, the sparrow dies. But even when the hairs of your head are numbered, fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than the sparrow. That God is in control of these things. If he's control of even the most, we would call it little tiny things in life, what does that mean about your own life? Turn to Psalm 91. 
This is the, the confidence that a believer has In Psalm 91, and we'll just look at verses 5 and 10. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the compense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall befall you. No plague come near your tent. And real quick, before you all run down the, hey, health, wealth, and prosperity, right? No one's, you know, I go into battle, how many people are going to die on either side of me? Thousands of them, right? Uh, I think the uh, hymn writer, John Ryland, wrote this best. He says, death and plagues around me fly, till he bid I cannot die, not a single shaft can hit, till the God of love seems fit. And I, I think that's a phenomenal way of putting it. I'll read it one more time. Because what he is saying there is, yeah, there's going to be a thousand who are going to die on your left and your right, but guess what one day you're going to do? You're going to die, but you will not die until the loving God seems fit. I'll read it one more time. Death and plagues around me fly. Till he bid, I cannot die. Meaning literally until God says, come home, you cannot die. Not a single shaft can hit until the God of love seems fit. And when that day comes, our eyes are to look to him and him alone. Whatever your earthly body is like when you breathe your last, whether your hips are out of whack, whether your back is broken, whatever it is, right? All of that will be made new, but we're not there to make our bodies new. It is new because we are with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we long for that day. But until that day comes, how are we to live? In those moments where one of the things that I, the, let's be honest, I would say God has given us as a gift. Now, you may say, easy for you to say, Tim, but I'm starting to see this gift come about. As your body falls apart, and as you, the thing, because here's what happens. We really trust our own strength. You know, I can do this, I can do that. I mean, the other day, so yesterday was a very humbling day for me. I went outside, and I went to try to move some branches that had froze. You know, like when everything, when every branch known to mankind fell this last uh, this a couple months ago. So I'm outside trying to move some branches. And the 30-year-old Tim would just go over, grab the thing, you know, lift with my back, pull them up, and move them. And I go to lift a branch, and they're like, it's not moving. And it's not because I couldn't have moved the branch. The, the sheer humbling nature of it was to go inside and go, hey, Tim, can you help me move a branch? I was like, oh, this is why my dad never asked for help. You know, and so then, but again, as a good dad, you know, I'm going to do, I'm not going to wait for him to come out. I decided to grab a tow rope around and try yanking it with the truck instead of just waiting, you know, and I tried lifting it three or four more times until he finally came out. And where you sit there and go, the arm of flesh will fail you, Tim. But we really like to trust our own, don't we? We really like to say, God, I've got this by my own sheer strength. And all of a sudden, when your body starts to fail, you get to find out really where your faith and trust is. Is it in God or is it in your own ability? Because when you're young, it is very easy for it to be in your own ability. I can do this by the sheer just go get it at mentality. 
But one of the chiseling facts of growing older is realizing you can't do this. It's one of the things we need to learn all the time about the Christian walk. This is not done as well on your own strength. Remember, humility is utter dependence on the grace of God. What this group of believers is going to face is going to shake the Christian community in Rome to its core. But what are we going to find? They will be stronger still. What is the thing that builds the church? The persecution of the church makes it stronger. Why? Because God is sovereignly doing that in his world. So the question we have in front of us is, what did we learn today? So there's three things I have here, and we'll end with this. That this life of suffering is brief. This life of suffering is brief. God's grace is what carries us home. God's grace is what carries us home. And this is all anchored in the promise of the all-powerful, sovereign creator who decreed these things to happen from the very beginning. And that is why all power belongs to him and to him alone. And at that, Peter wraps up this book. He'll have some closing reminders at the end. But the thing that I really do believe he wants ringing in their ears is that God is sovereign over the affairs of all mankind, and he will one day restore what man has tried to break apart. And so that rest, that rest in him, is I believe what Peter is trying to remind this flock. Rest in God and him alone. The arm of flesh will fail. You dare not trust your own. Let's pray. Dearly Father, may we be anchored in you and you alone. You are that sure and steady anchor that as the waves of this world crash about us, may we find, again, your promises to be yes and amen, that what you have promised you are faithful to do. Help us. In your son's name we pray, amen.